is outside of any real and genuine or sincere interaction with him. They're in it for the benefits. Here they are crying on their bed. They want the provision, the corn and the wine that God may provide, those things that he is. Uh, and as we get into back into chapter four, he says, listen, I'm providing those things, but I'm going to remove them from you. Why? Because you're offering those very things that I'm providing for you. You're offering those to Baal. They're, they become the offerings of your idolatry. In Psalm 78, if you'll turn there with me, Psalm 78, <clears throat> verses 34 through 37, it says, When he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and inquired early after God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the high God, and, and the high God their redeemer. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth, and they lied unto him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. And this is a, while this was written before uh, the events that we read here in Hosea, this is representative of Israel at large. Because here they are crying unto him, they're, they're seeking him at the hand of his correction in response to that. But what is clearly stated is that their response to that, even their turning to him, is really a seeking of a relief and not a seeking of the Lord. Right? They, they want to, they flatter him with their mouth and they lie to him with their tongues. Their heart was not right with him. They weren't seeking the Lord. They hadn't turned to him. They were simply looking for a relief from the hand of God that they had fallen under. And, I, and this is commentary, as I say, on the kingdom of Israel, because what happens is that even in the midst of their captivity in Assyria, when they are restored back to, and we read in the book of Nehemiah, for example, here is the people coming back, we find that there is this reiteration and this calling to account because the people have continued to intermarry with uh, those who had been sent into the land, with these Samaritan people that God had commanded them not to. That they were, in fact, uh, pursuing other gods. There were high places and idols still in existence in Nehemiah's day when they were being released from even the Babylonian captivity. And as we get into Jesus's day, what does Jesus condemn the Pharisees of? But they've made the law of God of no effect because of their traditions. Their heart is far from him. The nation of Israel has yet to turn, and there is a day coming, and we know that because it's talked about in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, where the Israel will see him that they have pierced and they'll understand where they are. There is a time coming, and we look forward to that time because it has great ramifications even for us, the church. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, he says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Jesus is here in many respects addressing the nation of Israel, but I think it, it does us as the church, the people of God, to take heed here, because there are those even within our midst who have crept in unawares. We read about them in the book of Jude read about these false teachers uh, here in Matthew chapter 7 as they are known by their fruits. But they do all of these things, and they, they are on the outside doing things even in the name of the Lord, things that we would ascribe uh, great spirituality to, right? Casting out demons, we're, we're prophesying in his name, many wonderful works. But ultimately, God says, listen, your heart is far from me. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. And what we need to understand is not, not everyone that names the name of the Lord is part of the household of God. When we studied through the book of Romans, we talked about the uh, God's Israel versus the nation of Israel. Those who in, in faith would accept, like, like Abraham, this coming Messiah who would walk in obedience. And we've even alluded to it here as we've studied through Hosea. That this is painting in very broad terms. Certainly, there are those in the kingdom of Israel who are faithful to the Lord. 
yet here they face a national judgment. They face uh, the, the punishment of God, as it were, upon the entire nation, they themselves being subject to it. It is the ramification of the effects of sin. Uh, for you and I, we, we experience much the same thing. That we live in a world that is corrupted by sin, that is affected by sin, and as our nation may remove itself from the biblical principles upon which it was founded, we may suffer some of the consequence. In Titus chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me, Titus chapter 1, verse 16. <clears throat> Titus 1.16, they profess that they know God. In other words, we say it with our mouth. We may say it uh, out loud. We may proclaim it loudly, but in works, they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. Now, <clears throat> we're not talking about works unto salvation, but what we are talking about is the principle that, as Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7, you will know them by their fruits. Right, that good trees bring forth good fruit, and corrupt trees bring forth corrupt fruit. When we talk about fruit within the Christian life, it becomes almost a taboo topic because it's legalism, and you're, you're burdening us with all of these things. Uh, listen, if God says to do it, to walk in obedience to that is not legalism. If God says don't do it, to, to refrain ourselves from it is not legalism. It's simply trust and exercise, trust in the Word of God and exercise in faith. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So if I profess that I know Christ in general terms, though we've acknowledged that there is a struggle with sin, that that is real and legitimate, we've talked about that through our study in the book of Hosea, their characteristic is such that we are those who are striving to walk in obedience. And we are trying to express our love through that outward expression that is consistent with the profession of our faith. In other words, how we act and what we say are the same. The church uh, it lives and exists in an area right now, at least in Western society, where what we profess and the way we operate are not the same. I read an article just the other day where, uh, and I apologize, I don't remember the, the group, the organization, but it's, it's uh, an LGBTQ, XYZ, all the alphabetical letters. Uh, organization, and they've got all these faith leaders that are signing on and saying, and, and somehow this is acceptable. Listen, if God has said that it's sin, then it's sin, and it is. doesn't mean that we hate the person or that we should treat them uh, with disrespect or with hate or with disdain, but it doesn't change the fact that what God has called sin is sin, and we don't compromise on that fact. They don't have any problem other than sin, which is the same problem that you and I had before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the church that is accepting of this and saying, listen, we're going to band together with those who would call evil good and good evil, and we're going to associate, associate ourselves with that. That's the world that we live in today. That's the characteristics of the church in general today. That they profess that they know God, but they deny him in their works, in their deeds, in the outward expression of their faith. <clears throat> Back to Hosea chapter 8, Israel cries unto me, God, we know thee. There's this profession of faith. But he says in verse 3, Israel has cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. The, the thing that is thrown off, what has been cast off, and it's an interesting phrase, it means not the thing, it means him who is, or the thing that is good. So ultimately, they've cast off God, anything that he has declared to be good and right. They've thrown it off. Right In, in Psalm chapter 2, why do the heathen rage, and why do the kings of the earth assemble themselves together, or they imagine this vain thing, and they say, we're going to cast off this burden, this yoke of bondage, that's how they perceive what God has commanded them to, what he has asked them to refrain from. And it says the Lord will have them in derision. Right? There is a complete and an utter misunderstanding of the righteousness, which is one of the attributes of God. 
his righteousness, that everything that he does is perfect and holy and right in and of itself. There's no expression of it. And if we interpret it as somehow wrong, then we are in the wrong in that interpretation. God establishes the standard. In Psalm chapter 119, I'll just write this down. Psalm 119, verse 68. I'll do my best to get there quickly. Psalm 119, verse 68. says, Thou art good, and dost teach good. Teach me thy statutes. There's this declaration that God is good, and that everything that he instructs us, everything that he has revealed to us in his word, is in itself good and right. And that is a correct and a, and, and a biblical understanding of the Word of God. That is a biblical understanding of the nature and the character of God and His revelation of Himself to us. In Psalm 73, verse 28, Psalm 73, verse 28, But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. So here we are, those who would draw near to God or those that should desire to draw near to God. That we would encounter him in such a place uh, that, that we would want to draw near to him. Now, we talked about this as we studied through uh, last week in Sunday school, that, that God, in one of his attributes is wrathfulness. He, he will punish sin. That he will execute judgment. That he will, uh, in his justice and all of those things, that will be part of his outward expression. And we talked about the wrathfulness of God because for you and I as believers, that is a corrective thing. And, and as the word says, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In other words, the wrathfulness of God, reaping what we sow, even though we may be believers, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. It's a preservative thing for you and I. Right? That you and I would we would remove ourselves from that sin knowing that, listen, I may suffer the consequence at God's very hand. But his love towards us, in the midst of that, his mercy towards us, equally uh, as expressed as his wrathfulness, would be the motivation to walk in obedience. That those two things, the reward of good, the blessing of walking in truth and obedience, and the consequence of walking outside of truth and obedience would be the motivators and the, and the corrective hand of God for you and I. It is good to draw near to God. No matter what state we find ourselves in, no matter what side of the line we're on, whether we're feeling really close and in favor with God or, or not, it's good to draw near, period. He hasn't removed himself from us. He's there eagerly awaiting us the return of his prodigal children in repentance. And why? So that we may declare all his works to his glory and his honor. We can't correct ourselves, nor can we make ourselves new, but in Christ, we are all new. Old things are passed away. Behold, everything is new. The nation of Israel is betrayed by their actions. Verse 4, he says, they have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Now, it wasn't any surprise to God. He is fully engaged in this process, but they weren't seeking his counsel. He continues on, and he says, of their silver and their gold have they made them idols, that they may be cut off. Israel has turned to choosing their own kings. Now, we understand in the inception of this kingdom under Jeroboam, that was proclaimed by God. We can read about that. Uh, that was what God had decreed was going to happen. Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son, was unresponsive to godly counsel. Uh, <clears throat> we're getting ahead of myself here. Just to, We'll come back to that. <laughs> okay. God fully understands that they're what is happening here, but he's fully engaged in this process. Now, don't misunderstand. Even though there's a declaration that I knew it not, God is not saying that he is somehow ignorant of what they're doing. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, we have the true principle that for you and I as believers, and even all the way back into Israel's day, that God is fully engaged in the process. It says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So even these godless leaders that the people themselves were choosing, they weren't seeking God's counsel. And, and if you read through the Old Testament, 
There's a desire by the kingdom, uh, by the people of Israel, as before the kingdom split, to have a king. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And, you know, God's like, yeah, I'm not enough. You know, the creator of the universe who has provided everything, who's delivered you miraculously out of Egypt, I'm not enough. But you desire a king, so I'll give you a king. And he allows it. And who does he send? But one of his prophets. He sends Samuel. And he ordains Saul as king. Now, it might have been the people's choice, but it was the ordination of God's man that established him in that role. And then when the kingdom was removed from Saul because of his pursuit of ungodly things, we find that it was Samuel yet again who was sent into the household of Jesse who ordained David to be the next king. And we see this lineage, this, this lineage and this promise of God to the, to the lineage of David. There will always be somebody from your household on the throne of God. And ultimately, we, as we get into Jesus and his lineage, we find that he is the legitimate king of Israel, not only by God's decree, being the son of God, but he is literally the only heir through both his mother and his father to legitimately sit on the throne of God as a descendant of David. But in Israel, in the kingdom of Israel, we have something else happening. After Jeroboam, and because of his idolatry, we find that he is no longer going to have an heir on the throne. And what do we find if you read through the Old Testament, through 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, what you're going to find is that all the kings of Israel, for the most part, come to power through murder and conniving and scheming. Ultimately, the people are choosing who gets to be their king, who they'll submit themselves to. And the person that sits on the throne probably is not an heir of anyone before, but probably killed the person and the heirs that were on the throne before them. More often than not, that's what we find. In 2 Kings, for example, if you want to put in your notes, 2 Kings chapter 15, uh, 2 Kings 15 verses 10 through 30, just as a sampling of, of this very principle. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but <clears throat> uh, beginning in verse 10, and Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and smote him before the people and slew him and reigned in his stead. Right? So here, here we have somebody being killed, murdered, so that somebody else may sit on the throne. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the ninth and thirtieth year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month in Samaria. And Manahem, verse 14, the son of Gade, went up from Terzah and came to Samaria and smote Shalom. Right? So here we have all this murder, these people. And here's the thing. None of the people are anywhere recorded speaking against this. The people are subjecting themselves to this. They're allowing this to happen. This is the foundation upon which the kingdom of Israel is, is going to have its own king. Of their silver and their gold, they made them idols that they may be cut off. Now, this is an important statement. We understand that throughout the book of Hosea, this is the illustration that is being used. That here is Hosea with his adulterous wife, and that is representative of the kingdom of Israel and God who is all faithful, yet Gomer is unfaithful, just as Israel is unfaithful, adulterous, and that adultery being equated with this idolatry. It turns me to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. In 1 Kings 11, we encounter Solomon. He's still the king at this point. And in, in 1 Kings 11, we also encounter Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, the first king of the kingdom of Israel. But in verse 33 of 1 Kings chapter 11, I want you to see what, what God says. This is speaking about Solomon. He says, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, Chemosh, the son of the Moabites, and Milcom, the, the god of the children of Ammon, have not walked in my ways to do that which is right in mine eyes and to keep my statutes and my judgments as David his father did. We will remember that Solomon married all of these women. He had all of these concubines. And the word of God states that they drew his heart away. He fell into idolatry. And here we find this clear statement. Because of his idolatry, he's going to be removed from the, from the throne. And that's exactly what happened. That his, he, he's no longer king, his son Rehoboam, the kingdom is split under them. Idolatry, the end result, are these godless leaders in the kingdom of Israel. And it's founded upon, it's predicated upon, even its very inception, upon idolatry. And that's what the people are pursuing, that's what they want. They keep putting back in leadership 
exactly what they want. They keep allowing that. In 2 Kings chapter 13, right? So the, the kingdom of Israel is split because of the idolatry of Solomon in 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 33 to 34. <clears throat> Here we are into the kingdom of Israel. Speaking about Jeroboam, the first king, who, who was God's choice to be the king. And after this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people, priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from off the face of the earth. Why was the kingdom removed from Jeroboam and his lineage? Because of idolatry. This is what the people wanted. This is what they keep putting back into office. This same kind of thing continued into Jesus' day. That this is uh, the, the nation of Israel did, really didn't recover from this division of heart and mind. We find that just because they are the people of God, there is still this interaction with sin within them. Just because they are the chosen people of God, they are not separated from sin by nature of being God's people. And all I mean by that is just they were his peculiar people. He had set them apart as long as they kept his commandments, that they were going to be this peculiar thing, this example people, as we find in Scripture, that the Old Testament was written for our benefit, that we might understand what God had done in Jesus Christ. And those who by faith, like Abraham, trusted in what God had promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 to provide and deliver to them their faith, was it accounted them as righteousness, not their position in a particular nation or people group. Their faith was counted to them as righteousness. Here we have this faithless kingdom, this faithless people. They're far from God, though they may be his quote-unquote people. And this is what we encounter in Jesus' day. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we find... Uh, James, uh, excuse me, Peter and John, they had been taken captive. They'd healed the man at the beautiful gate. They didn't have any silver and gold, but they gave him Jesus Christ, right? And they picked him up by the hand and his ankle bones received strength. And they went walking and leaping and praising God into the temple. And what do the people do in response to this? Well, they take Peter and John and the religious leaders and they put them in chains. They're like, wait a minute, by what name did you do this? They're like, well, by the name of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, they're charged. They're, they're said, we'll let you go, but because we have to let you go, the people have seen this great miracle. If we do anything to them, we're going to be in real trouble. And so they let them go, but they said, you can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And their response to those leaders is, listen, we're going to preach in the name of Jesus because that's what we we're commanded to do. If you think that's wrong, that's between you and the Lord. But we pick up in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 29. Peter and John have been uh, released, and they return back to the, the rest of the church, as it were. And they're, they're in this short passage, they're rejoicing. They're, they're rejoicing at what God has done. And it says this, Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers get against, gathered against together against the Lord and against his Christ, or against his anointed. They're quoting from Psalm 2. For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. Right, so here we have the Gentiles, those outside of the people of God, the godless, and those who should be godly, the people, the example people of God, Israel, joining together to persecute the promised Redeemer. Verse 28, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Right, here it is, this people, that Jesus Christ himself came, that he took on flesh and dwelt among them, and they beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, John 1.14. And what do they do? Turn with me to John chapter 19. Jesus walks among them for this three-year period. 
He's observed to have wisdom and understanding well beyond his years, well beyond his, his level of, of training, well beyond any other Nazarene. Uh, people from Nazareth were not particularly uh, well-received. They were somewhat above the Samaritans, but not by much. Not only that, but he was from Galilee, which is another sort of the poor side of, of Israel. But here's Jesus observed to be understanding. He speaks with authority. He speaks with power. They know there's something different. And we know in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he says, listen, we understand that only somebody from God could be doing the things that you're doing. There was an acknowledgement there. There had obviously been some sort of discussion, some understanding, because he's not referring to something that he had observed. He's referring to something that we, the Sadducees, had observed. Yet what did they do in John 19, verse 15? As they stand before Herod, but they uh, before Pontius Pilate, and they cried out, "Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him!" Pilate said unto him, "Shall I crucify your king? Should I crucify your king?" That's the accusation that they made that he's setting himself as a king. Should I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, "We have no king but Caesar." This is exactly what's happening in Hosea's day. They're putting into leadership those who will feed their idolatrous tendencies, who will engage in that, who won't tear it down. This is what we find in the kingdom of Judah. You have ups and downs in Judah, right? You have good kings and bad kings. And when the good kings come in, they tear down the high places, they tear down the idols, and they sort of push the people toward the worship of God. And the bad kings undo all that, and they push the people back toward idolatry. Judah has ups and downs. Israel just is down. There aren't any good kings in Israel. They start in idolatry, they continue in idolatry, and they continue to allow leadership. And that's who they get behind, that's who they support. And here in Jesus' day, we have this exactly the same. Whatever king will get them what they want is who they will ascribe allegiance to. We have no king but Caesar because we want to see this man put to death. In Luke chapter 20, if you'll turn there with me, Luke chapter 20. Verses 9 through 16, <clears throat> Jesus speaks a parable, and we referenced this parable earlier. It's a parable of the vineyard. So we had this man, he has this vineyard, and he gets it all ready. He hires the husbandman, somebody to take care of it on his behalf. And when it's time, he sends somebody over there to receive what's, what's due him. And they kill his messenger. Over and over, they kill his messenger. And then ultimately, he says, listen, I'm going to send my son. They'll reverence, they'll show respect and honor to my son. And they kill the son. Now, this is a parable about Israel. And those messengers are the prophets, those that they had beaten, those that they had killed. And here is Jesus Christ, who is the son of the father, the son of the owner of that property. And they've killed Jesus. And in verse 16, it says, He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. Jesus' audience here is Israel. They understand exactly what's being told them by Jesus Christ. He says, listen, God is going to send someone else. He's going to send this kingdom, this, this status of being my people somewhere else. When we get into the book of Romans in chapter 9, uh, for example, I believe it's chapter 9, it might be chapter 11, but somewhere in there, God's talking about, listen, that these were put off so that, and given to the Gentiles. And he has this, this discussion about this grafting in, as it were. We've talked about that in the past as we've gone through Hosea. But what is Israel doing? The kingdom of Israel continues to put leaders in and support leaders and subject themselves to leaders that will feed their fleshly tendencies. Now, for you and I, we don't live in Israel. We live in another country that was founded upon biblical principles. What do we do? How do we take this principle of truth and how do we stand upon it? What does that look like for you and I living here in America? Because we have the freedom to exercise some voice, as it were, about the leaders that we would have over us. Well, first of all, we trust the sovereignty of God. We trust the sovereignty of God. In Romans 13, 1, it is true in their day, and it's still true in our day, that there is no power 
except that which is established by God. Now, God was using it in their day to bring about uh, their ultimately their correction and their restoration to him. And ultimately, God is using whatever leaders may be in power in any country, anywhere, even in America, to bring about his, wills, his will and his purpose. Whether it's his hand of correction upon a nation, whether it's his hand of revival upon a nation, whatever it may be, God is using those leaders and he has established them as such. Now, that means that for you and I, as believers, there is some responsibility to be in submission to those leaders. We, thankfully, in America, have the opportunity to speak against those leaders and to do so freely. We have the opportunity to exercise uh, some, uh, some way, shape, and form within our government. And in fact, if we understand how America was founded, we understand that we are the foundational unit of government. We shouldn't take that lightly. But first and foremost, we trust in God's sovereignty. Had a conversation uh, a couple, couple weeks ago, uh, and in that conversation, uh, we talked about voting. And sometimes when we vote, because we're never commanded by God to choose the lesser of two evils, sometimes to vote with a clear conscience means I couldn't vote. I couldn't check that box. I just couldn't. I couldn't vote for that. I couldn't vote for that. I just have to leave it blank. But it becomes incumbent upon me as a believer to do due diligence to see where people stand, to see what biblical principles come to play, how they hold the word of God and, and where their position with, with God may be. So we're going to trust God's sovereignty. In those places where I didn't check your box, I literally was trusting God's sovereignty. Lord, I can't support either of these. You never told me to support evil in any way, shape, or form, so therefore I'm trusting that you will put here who needs to be here. Secondly, we stand firm on truth, and we do so as a witness of God. Okay, here in Hosea, turn with me back to chapter 8, and, and let's look at verse 12. He says, speaking about Ephraim, which is, right, that's the royal tribe. That's the tribe that Jeroboam was from. He says, I have written unto him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. Here is Israel. They're the recipients of God's law, yet in the kingdom of Israel, it's a strange thing. They're unfamiliar with it. They don't understand it. They don't know it. They don't know truth. And we've talked about in the past, in, in this church, we've talked about the illiteracy that the American church at large holds in regard to the Word of God. They don't know what it says. They don't read it. They don't interact with it. They're completely disassociated with truth, which is exactly what God is saying about the kingdom of Israel. In Psalm 147, if you'll turn there with me for a moment, Psalm 147 Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. He says, He showed His words unto Jacob, His statutes and His judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for His judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. There is this declaration about the special and the unique relationship that God had with Israel that he had given them his words. And in Romans chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me, there's this whole discussion in Romans leading up to chapter 3 about circumcision not availing anything, that, that, that ultimately it isn't, it isn't the, the religious practice of Israel that sets somebody apart, if I can just phrase it that way, but it is our faith that would set us apart and establish us in relationship with God. And so the question is asked, in verse 1 of Romans chapter 3, what advantage then has the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? In other words, how did God establish his people as special if there's nothing, all the rites and practices that they've established, if there's nothing in it? That's the question that's being asked. And the response is much every way, chiefly because under them were committed the oracles or the word of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And that's a rhetorical question. Of course not. Just because there were those that chose not to believe, like the kingdom of Israel at large, 
it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that there is no faith or that their faith doesn't have effect. Here is the people of God, God's people, His example people, and He's given them the oracles of God. He's given them the law. He's given them this account of creation. He's given them uh, and recorded their history throughout time for an example for you and I in today. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8 says, Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all the statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who has God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? God says, listen, Israel, you'll be my people. I'm going to give you my law. And when you keep my law, then I'll be your God and you'll be my people. I'm going to establish you as an ornament, as it were, as an example for my people. And the way that I'm going to do that is through my law. And when you walk in accordance with it, when you live by it, then you'll be understood as a wise and understanding people. You'll be a witness to the world around you of my glory and my wisdom, my understanding, and my sovereignty. And the same is true today. We look at our country. Now, I'm not trying to say that somehow America is on the same plane as Israel. We're not, in many respects, we are a special nation because we're founded on biblical principle. But here's the thing. If we found our lives upon biblical principle, we're going to reap what we sow. The nation, the, the, the kingdom the nation, sorry, the nation of America founded itself on biblical principle, and we've reaped what we've sown. Right? God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall also reap. So here we have godly leaders who are establishing the country upon godly biblical principles, and we reap the success of those things. We reap the blessing of those principles. We're understood as a nation that is wise and understanding. Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, is that, that the right name? I think so. De Tocqueville, God, that doesn't sound right. He was French. He was in the Sunday school book, um, and I can't remember his name. But he came to America in the early 1800s, and he walked through America. I'm pretty sure it's Alexis de Tocqueville or something along those lines. I apologize for not having that. It was there, and now it's gone. Okay, but what did he observe? He said, listen, America is a country. We have a lot of resources. We have all kinds of great stuff going for us as a country. But he said, what I observe isn't that those things are what make America great. He says, you want to know what makes America great? He says, go to their churches. He says, in their churches is where you learn the principles upon which they are founded. They are wholly dedicated to the word of God and those principles. And that was what made America great. You and I, in this country, we have the responsibility and the privilege to be engaged in that process. Now, I'm under no delusion that America remains a Christian nation. We're founded upon biblical principles, but we are so far from those today that I couldn't say that we're a Christian nation. We're probably, and have been for quite some time, a post-Christian nation. We reap what we've sown and we reap the success of those biblical principles. Unfortunately, we're also going to reap what we sow, and we're going to reap the consequences of the unbiblical principles that we operate in today. We need to be engaged in that process. So we trust sovereignty. We understand that God is in control, that he is using whatever is happening to bring about his purpose, his will. Secondly, we stand firm on truth. We are uncompromising in it. These are the biblical principles that brought success in our country, and will continue to bring success in our country. We stand firm upon those biblical principles, not for the success that it brings in our country, but because it is the word of God, because it is truth. And last, we don't choose evil. Right in 1 Kings chapter 18, we don't choose evil. We're never told to compromise. We don't don't choose something that is less than evil or something that is less perceived to be less evil than something else. It is sin because it is sin because God has declared it to be so, And in no way, shape, or form does it ever cease to be sin. 
1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. Here we have Elijah about to show down there on the Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and he tells the nation of Israel this in uh, 1 Kings 18, 21. How long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Right? We don't choose evil. The choices before us, we're either for God or we're against God, and you and I choose God. We choose His ways, His principles, His purpose. We walk in obedience to Him, period. The church shouldn't be characterized in the same way that Israel is, where our actions betray a heart that is far from God. The way we operate, the way we conduct ourselves, our interactions with each other and with the world outside should be consistent with our profession of faith. Israel should have been consistent in their profession of faith. <clears throat> As always, God is here condemning the nation of Israel in Hosea chapter 8 for their idolatry. He says in verses 5 and 6, The calf, O Samaria, thy calf, has cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? In other words, how long will it be before they repent? For from Israel was it also, the workmen made it, therefore it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. He, he references simply the fact that it was a created thing. right? These idols that you fashioned, they are not God. God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, I am that I am. I am uncreated. I am not dependent upon anything. But here is your golden calf, Samaria. When we hear about Samaria, that is referring to Israel, the kingdom of Israel. Here's your golden calf. You made it. It can only have whatever power or it, it isn't God is the long and short of it. And he tells them, he continues on. He says, for they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. It has no stock, the bud shall yield no meal. If so be, it yield, the stranger shall swallow it up. Right? They've sown the wind and they reap the whirlwind. They get nothing out of the deal, right? If there is any harvest, he says that the, 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 the stock has no, no bud and the bud has no meal. If there is any harvest, if there is any yield as a result of that, the enemies are going to consume it. They reap what, they're, what they've sown. And ultimately, if you reap to a false god that doesn't exist, you reap nothing. And that's what he's saying here. <clears throat> In verse 8, he says, Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. And I want to talk about this verse for a while. I want to close talking about this verse, because I think in this verse, we find this illustration, right? We have in the very beginning, Hosea and Gomer. That marriage is the illustration that God chose to use to illustrate his relationship with the kingdom of Israel. That he was ultimately faithful, that they were ultimately adulterous. And I think that in this verse, we find a reference to marriage, and we find that illustration picked back up. God, who is good, has chosen Israel to be his. Now, they have chosen to cast him off in adulterous idolatry. And he says that they will be scattered among the Gentiles. They're going to be separate in the Gentile world, but they're not unique any longer. And ultimately, that's what we find. They're, they sort of syncretize into the populations that they find themselves in. Now, Shalmanezer or Assyria is going to treat Israel as a worthless vessel. Something that is not honored. It is dishonor, right? This is utilitarian. This is, the, this is the junk. This is the stuff. This is the broken bucket that we water the cow with, right? That's, that's the level of respect and honor that he's going to give them. And I want to compare that with the, with the treatment that God had given Israel. God treated Israel as a vessel of honor, as a peculiar treasure to himself. Separate from all others, unique in relation, relationship, recipients of truth. They were heirs of grace. 
This is where they were at, yet they've chosen to be treated as worthless by rejecting God, by casting him off. They've taken the loving relationship, as it were, illustrated in marriage, and they said, we're going to choose this hard relationship where we're not esteemed or privileged in any way, shape, or form. In 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, says, nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knows them that are his. And let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in the great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and to some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified in meat for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. When we're talking about vessels and to honor and to dishonor, it isn't exactly their purpose, but it is their construction, as it were. Right? We've talked about this in the past, that we have these vessels that are the fine china, that they're up here and they're only brought out in the special occasions, and they sort of represent the glory and the majesty of the household. Yet there are also those vessels, because you don't take your fine china down to the, to the well and get water with it. You take some utilitarian thing. It's still important. It has value but it's not the same and it doesn't state in a way the majesty of the household, so to speak. And God says, listen, I have in my house, I have both. I have those utilitarian vessels and I have those other vessels under honor. And this is what he says, if a man purges himself from these, in other words, if he's willing to walk in obedience, if he's willing to honor the Lord in all that he does, then he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and fit for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. This is what he told the nation of Israel in Exodus 19. I'm going to give you my law, and if you'll just do what I tell you to do, then you'll be my people, and I'll be your God. Right? You'll be the vessel unto honor that, I've, that I'm inviting you to be. And God, in his faithfulness, continued to abide in that faithful relationship with him, though they had put him off. Now, for you and I as believers, there's some application here because we want to consider the example of marriage as it exists in Scripture as a witness of the gospel. In 1 Peter chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me, 1 Peter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. I want to preface all this with just a statement of understanding that God in His righteousness and in his holiness has established the order in which marriage and that relationship works. And he's done so as a witness of himself and the glory and the majesty of his kingdom and his relationship with his people. And we find that illustrated and highlighted within biblical marriage. Okay, So we're not talking about a less worth or a value statement upon women or anything like that. We're simply stating this is what God has said is good and right, and that's how we're going to operate. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Now, this is an, an instruction. This is wives, keep your mouths closed. I mean, that's, that's a really short summary and maybe, maybe a little blunt, more blunt than is being explained here because it's in relation to the unbelieving husband. Right, throughout the book of Proverbs, we had this discussion about a nagging wife, and she's obnoxious, and she's like a dripping sink. You know, it's, you just can't get it out of your mind. You, you hide up on the rooftop. So he's saying, listen, by your chaste conversation, by your, by your uh, uh, not nagging, by your expression of love and subjection to your husband, which is the picture here, this expression of obedience in submission to the husband as God has declared to be right and good, you may very well win your husband. Not only, and I'm convinced, not only in relation, not in relationship to God and His coming to faith, but you may win your husband in relationship to your marriage. Okay, <clears throat> it says while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, right? They're going to observe your behavior, your obedience, and you're going to be become comely, desirable to your husband. We talked about it briefly this morning. How do we, as the church, become desirable? to our husband, Jesus Christ, through quiet obedience. By expressing of love through obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
he says, and he continues on, who's adorning, speaking about these wise, let, there, let it not be outward adorning of plating of the hair and the wearing of gold or putting out of silver, uh, uh, of apparel, right? It's not the fancy clothes, it isn't the way you wear your hair, it isn't the jewelry that we wear. Now, not that there's anything wrong in and of those things. It's not a prohibition about that. But what he's saying is that what is going to win the heart of your husband isn't the way you look on the outside, but the position of your heart in respect to him. And in the same way, God tells you and I, this being an illustration of the gospel, what pleases him isn't the way we look on the outside. That was Israel. That was the commentary that we have about Israel. That they're far from God. They look good on the outside, their braided hair, their nice jewelry and makeup, and, and they put themselves together, but on the inside, their heart is far from him. And they're undesirable. It says, let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which was not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection under their own husbands. Right? Here they are expressing this, being the very examples of it, and he references Sarah here, who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. And he says this word to husbands, and, and while it may be shorter to husbands, it's just as poignant, and it's just as significant. It says, husbands, likewise, you husbands dwell with them according to knowledge. Listen, you need to understand your wives. You need to be engaged in that process. Right here is God who knows everything, as we've read in Hebrews chapter 4, that everything is open and laid bare before him, naked as it were in God's sight, with who, him with whom we have to do. Now, husbands, we're not omniscient. We're not going to be all-knowing about everything that's going in our, in, on in our wives' hearts and minds. Uh, but we should be engaged enough that there is some knowledge and understanding about that. Likewise, husbands, deal with your wives in knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So we give honor to the wife as a weaker vessel. Here is this reference to this weaker vessel, just as we read about in Hosea. God has chosen the people of Israel to be this weaker vessel, and, and all it means by weaker is the, by reference to its construction, right? It is the choice stuff. Listen, your, your fine china is never going to hold up the same if you drop it on the floor as the cheap stuff that you bought at Walmart, right? You're going to drop the plate. One's going to break. One's not going to break. That's what speed reference here. The weaker vessel is simply its position of honor and respect. Right, so we treat them with respect and like, all I'm saying is this, that this is a picture of what God has established. That you and I, bride of Christ, all of us, men and women, are represented as this weaker vessel. And what is God desiring by his example of marriage? What does he give us the example of within the church? Simply that we would obey him, that we would walk in quiet submission that we would subject ourselves to he who is our head. In Ephesians chapter 5, we find a very similar thing. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24. And this is even a clearer statement. He says, therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ. So we have this very clear connection. The church should be subject to Christ. In the same way that wives are to their husbands, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. The example of marriage, here we have it in, it pictured one way from one side of the same coin in Peter, in, in Ephesians, the other side of the same coin in Ephesians. But the point is the same, that the bride of Christ, the church, should be submitted and subjected to our husband, to, to the groomed to Jesus Christ. Just as the nation of Israel should have been subjected to God the Father. In Romans chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me, let's make further, uh, avail ourselves further of the Word of God as we take a look at this. Romans chapter 6, 
verse 11. We're going to read three verses here in Romans 6. He says, Likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here we are. We, we, we ourselves are dead to sin. In other words, no longer is that what is driving us and pushing us forward, but our pursuit here should be something different. We should henceforth not serve sin. Here's the nation of Israel who is continually serving sin, just as we read in Genesis chapter 6 at the, at the reference to the people who perished in the flood, that the imaginations of their hearts was only evil all the time. Now, you and I are faced with something different as those who are subject, who are the bride of Christ. We are no longer subject to this. Our old man is crucified. We understand that. We should know that. Therefore, we don't serve sin. We choose not to serve sin. We choose to subject ourselves to Jesus Christ. And in fact, if we jump down to verse 13, he says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Not only do we just cease from sin, but now we yield ourselves to submission and obedience to Christ. In Ephesians, we read about the, the man who was a robber, who, who was a thief. When does he cease to be a thief? Well, it isn't when he just stops stealing. It's when he begins to labor with his own hands. And in the same way, how do we show our subjection, our submission to the bride of Christ, to, to, to the groom of the church, to Jesus Christ? Well, we do so by obedience. No longer do we don't just serve sin. We've stopped yielding ourselves there, but we begin to yield ourselves now to the direction of Jesus Christ. We walk in obedience to his word and his truth. One more verse here, as I said, verse 18. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. This is our position in Jesus Christ, that we would serve first and foremost righteousness. God would tell us people, be holy even as I am holy. That we should reflect his holiness. That we would walk in subjection and submission to he who has made us holy through his shed blood. One more reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. It's probably not the last reference, but the last reference for the main point, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. He says, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the, man, but the woman for the man. Now, in this, as I said earlier, there isn't a statement of value. There's simply a statement of created order. We find that that, that example of created order, it, it's very much a similar concept to Jesus addressing the purpose of the Sabbath. The Sabbath wasn't created so that man would have some other law to be obligated to. The Sabbath was created for man, something blessing that God had extended to man so that he might rest and enjoy the fruits of his labor, that he might find communion with his God. That's the purpose of the Sabbath, as stated in the Old Testament. It's not some obligatory thing that we keep. Here we have sort of the same idea. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power, on, excuse me, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. It's simply created order. Now, when we look at this, we have to understand that we are the created thing. When we look at the illustration of marriage in regard to our submission to Jesus Christ, we are always the woman. We are always the wife. Man, woman, church, period. We are the bride of Christ. That is a position that we hold, and it's a position of honor and prestige. It's something that God would leave heaven behind die on the cross that he might redeem the bride, that he might wash us by the washing of the water of the word, that he might sanctify us, a bride without spot or blemish. Jesus has done an awful lot and set us apart, and, and it is our reasonable service that we would lay our lives down on as a living sacrifice, that we would submit ourselves before him. In Revelation chapter 4, for just a moment, in regard to this created order, if we are the created thing and he is in fact the creator, then this would apply to you and I, Revelation 4.11, thou art worthy, O Lord, 
to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That means you and me. Why did God create you and me? In some respects, so that we might be subject to him, that for his glory and honor and his pleasure, we were created. Our purpose is to honor and to glorify him, to walk in submission before our God. In Romans eleven thirty six, 36, as we close here this morning, almost close here, Romans eleven thirty six. 36. <clears throat> For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Of him and through him and to him. We are as the church to be walking in subjection to Jesus Christ. Here the kingdom of Israel is a representation of what it looks like to fail that submission. Because they had put off. They chose to be this discarded and worthless vessel with Assyria. Rather than remain the, the people of the living God treated with honor and, and special privilege, as it were. Now we stand as a church in the same position of honor. We stand as the church as the bride of Christ. And so the question for you and I is this, and this is what I want to close with and what I want us to, to ponder, is that whose vessel will we choose to be? Will we choose to be a vessel that is that of the world, that is that of the enemy, that is disdained, that is hated, and we will pursue after that enemy to somehow become acceptable to it, which is what culture tells us we should do, which is what the world and the church, in many respects, has done. Rather than remain submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, rather than remain committed to truth and standing firm upon all that he has, remaining his vessel of honor and distinction. Whose vessel will we choose to be? Joshua put this question before the nation of Israel as they entered into the promised land. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, we should all be able to quote this because it was a memory verse. I can't. I'm a terrible memorizer. I apologize. Do as I say and not as I do. Joshua 24, 15. He puts this very question to the nation of Israel. <clears throat> he says, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day who you will serve. In other words, whose vessel will you choose to be? Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the God which your fathers served, which were on the other side of the flood, the gods of the Amorites, or in whose land you dwell. Right? You can fall to idolatry. You can worship all these other gods that were not, in fact, gods. They were created by men's hands. They were dependent. They were God after your own liking and image, just like Israel has fallen to. And as a result, you'll have to give the requisite offering for remaining in that, that idolatry. And one of the key things that you're going to give up is being this people of peculiarity, this people that God has established as the weaker vessel, the vessel of honor. Or he says, you can be like me and my family. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to walk in subjection and submission to our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to remain in that pl place of honor and distinction. And as such, we will have a witness before those in the land that we're going to go and take. This is the question that's before you and I. This was the question that was before the nation of Israel. This is a question that stands before the church, and I'm very concerned that the church at large doesn't want to be in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. I praise you, Lord, that you speak directly to us through it. And Lord, that as we have opportunity to live in a country that is free, uh, Lord, where we can articulate opinions and, and biblical principle, Lord, that you would help us to do so boldly. Knowing, Lord, that as your word says, we may reap uh, from those around us unpopularity and even possibly persecution. Lord, but may it never be spoken of any of us here that we were those who would, who would put off our submission to you in pursuit of some other 
anything. Lord, that we would be wholly and completely submitted unto Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, that peculiarity, that desire to remain in fellowship and communication with you, that fervent uh, adherence to your word, that, Lord, would be a witness to the world around us. We are created for your glory, Lord, and help us to be uh, representatives of that glory in both word and in deed. We praise you now, Lord, and we thank you for the church that you've placed us in. We, Lord, pray for our fellowship. We commit this time into your hands, asking, Lord, that we would be those instruments of sanctification in each other's lives, and we would be those that would provoke unto love and good works, as your word says. We praise you and thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>